From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, in a special episode, we look at parent perceptions and some new projections regarding learning loss during the COVID-19 pandemic. 95% of parents in the survey said that they wanted regular contact or access to their child's teacher. And yet only 52% of parents said that it was currently happening in their child's school. That's a really huge gap. We welcome the Education Trust's Ian Rosenblum and Alicia Ariaga to discuss two new polls gauging the opinions and concerns of thousands of parents in New York and California. Parents were really seeking much more consistent contact with their teachers. They were also really looking for much more equitable access to academic resources. And the top line for us is that parents were really concerned about whether or not their students would fall behind academically. And later, we speak with NWEA's Megan Kufeld about a new set of projections based on research in the summer learning loss that could shine a light on some potential educational impacts of COVID-related school closures. These projections kind of provide some sort of baseline, but then there's another group of kids who this may not even be as bad as it gets. We also discuss some important implications and some possible ways forward for policymakers, schools, and families across the country. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith T. Miller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. We begin today by discussing two new polls conducted by the Education Trust in New York and California, which offer us one of the first real glimpses of parent perceptions during an unprecedented period in American education. To discuss the New York poll, we welcome Ian Rosenblum, Executive Director of the Education Trust New York. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. Thank you for having me. To start, could you just tell us a little bit about the poll itself? What was it that led your team to conduct it and what kinds of things were you hoping to learn? Our work is grounded in uh, educational equity advocacy, and we're specifically focused on ensuring that students who are low income and students of color and other student groups that have been historically underserved by our education system receive the high quality education that they deserve and are entitled to. Um, And we know that vulnerable students are at particular risk when schools are closed. And in fact, that the same groups of students who are underserved by our education system in normal times are most likely to be underserved now. So what we wanted to do was to get a sense of how families are experiencing school closures so that we could really focus on what parents and students say they need um, during these really difficult times. So in terms of the poll, um, could you give us an idea of the scope? Um, How many respondents did you have and what kinds of questions were you asking? We conducted the poll with Global Strategy Group, which is a polling firm with a lot of expertise in this area. They conducted the poll online in English and Spanish with more than 1,200 respondents across the state. Since the poll was being conducted through an online platform, we were particularly interested in making sure that families could participate through mobile, through their phones, since, of course, part of what we wanted to look at 
was whether families were able to take advantage of distance learning during this time. So I uh, wanted to make sure that parents who might not have devices or high-speed internet access could still participate in the poll. Uh, and the majority of respondents actually participated via their phones and not via their desktops or other computers, which we thought was very important. Uh, we asked questions in the poll about families' overall experience with school closures, what their priorities are, and what their needs are from their schools, as well as the overall levels of stress that they and their children might be under now. So we'll jump right into the results then. Uh, the, the parents who polled their a variety of different concerns, and some concerns in particular seem to be high numbers of respondents. So could you just walk us through what you learned? That's right. One of the things that came through most clearly was that New York parents are deeply concerned about their children falling behind academically. In fact, 89% of parents overall said that they were worried about that. Nearly two-thirds of parents said that they were very concerned. We saw this theme across the board and even more starkly among parents who are low-income and Black parents. We thought that that was really interesting because so many additional concerns, like financial concerns, health concerns, child well-being concerns, are also so important right now uh, that to see that academic concerns still came out on top for parents overall was really noteworthy. Not because we believe academic concerns should outweigh other concerns, but rather because we believe it's so important that schools, as part of a larger response, be able to address the holistic needs of families, which has to include both academic and non-academic issues. We also heard loud and clear in the poll that parents are giving positive ratings to how their schools are handling coronavirus and school closures. The poll was conducted in New York in the early part of school closures, so they'd been closed about one to two weeks by the time we went into the field. And we think that this is, one, because schools are communicating a lot with families, and also because there's a, a real sense that we're all in it together during these unprecedented times. And yet, despite this overall strong level of support, there are really big gaps between what parents want and say would be helpful and what their schools are doing. And as school closures continue, we think addressing those gaps is going to be incredibly important to making sure that students and parents are receiving the support that they need. As you mentioned, the parents uh, who participated in this poll, those parents were in high-need areas and those in low-income households said that they were particularly concerned that school closures could have lasting impacts on their children's academic progress. And we have a wealth of research already on achievement gaps, resource allocation, and other factors that tell us that those concerns are likely not unfounded. So could you expand on that a little bit and what these results might tell us about educational equity during and even after the COVID-19 pandemic? That's right. You know, if anything, these school closures are a reminder of the incredible importance of schools in our society, and in particular, the stability that schools bring to so many families, instructional stability, relationship stability, even about access to nutritious food. And so when we asked parents what was important to them, those same issues came through loud and clear. 
And as we think in particular about instructional continuity and the concern that these foreclosures will lead to even greater educational inequity when students do return to school, we were most interested in hearing what parents said would be helpful in comparison to what they said is currently happening. And so we would maybe expect that technology issues would rise to the top since there's been so much focus on distance or remote learning and for good reason. And while we did hear a lot about technology, and I'm happy to talk through that, one thing came out even more sharply, and that was the importance of contact with educators. In fact, 95% of parents in the survey said that they wanted regular contact um, or access to their child's teacher, that that would be something that's helpful. And yet only 52% of parents said that it was currently happening for in their child's school. That's a really huge gap. Uh, likewise, we asked parents about access to their child's school counselor. And again, saw really high levels of overall wanting it and high levels of gap between that aspiration and the reality of their child's education. And then after that, we again saw really noteworthy issues with technology. 88% of parents said that their school was relying on distance learning or remote learning uh, immediately or that they were in the process of uh, setting that up. And there was a gap between um, how successful parents who were low income and other parents thought that distance learning was so far. And so when we think about things like having enough devices in the home and access to high-speed internet, those are concerns that really rose to the top for parents who said that they're not confident that their child will be able to participate in distance learning. Certainly, this pandemic presents an unprecedented and largely unforeseen set of challenges, and districts, schools, teachers, and staff deserve a lot of credit for the steps they've taken to address them. That said, are there things that we could be doing better to help mitigate these concerns or possible steps we could take going forward to prevent students from falling off academically? Absolutely. And I, I just want to start by reiterating what you said. You know, we know that school and district leaders, teachers, other school personnel are working incredibly hard in incredibly difficult circumstances. And so what we want to do is express gratitude for the work that they are doing and for their commitment to students. And at the same time, add in the voice of parents so that as school closures seem to be continuing for some length of time, we're able to really identify where there are gaps between the best intentions of educators and school systems and what parents and students say that they may be needing. So we can think not about what one teacher or school leader should be doing, but what our systems should be doing to support educators in providing the greatest possible services to vulnerable students and families during these really difficult times. And so I think that's a, a really important way to frame this question about what we should do next. So as we think about what to do next, we want to be able to build on the work that's already been done. We want to think again about those relationships. It's too much to say that every teacher should be contacting every student individually every day. But how do we think about how a school community can make sure that there are adults in that school community who are interacting with every student every day. That dramatically changes the ratio 
and puts those relationships that we've heard from parents as being at the forefront of their concerns and needs, it makes that more possible. Likewise, a lot of focus on distance learning. There's been a lot of really innovative work about not only how you provide more access to devices, um, to students, and in some cases to teachers, but also high-speed internet access. So how do you deploy hotspots? How do you work with uh, um, the private sector to make more internet access available? And then what has to come after that? Even with those efforts, we know that not every student will be able to participate in distance learning. So how do we match that commitment with paper packets and other instructional materials that do not rely on technology and can be distributed along with school meals at food banks or other community sites? And then finally, an issue that I'd raise is on making sure that we are really thinking about the unique needs of student populations. So that includes English language learners, ensuring that parents and students are receiving information in multiple languages, Uh, students with disabilities. How do we um, ensure that students who are relying on schools for a whole range of services are getting support now and will when schools reopen? And in fact, one of the things we saw in the poll was that parents of children with disabilities report even higher levels of stress than other parents um, statewide. And then finally, students experiencing homelessness who face some of the greatest challenges in, in regular times, now extraordinary challenges now. And how do we make sure that we're providing both the academic and the non-academic support to those students and their families? Ian Rosenblum, once again, is Executive Director of the Education Trust, New York. Thanks so much again for joining us, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Now we move to California and a similar poll recently conducted by EdTrust West. We have the pleasure of speaking with the Education Trust West's Executive Director, Alicia Smith-Ariaga. Thanks so much for joining us, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. So was the poll in California conducted in a similar manner and in a similar scope as the EdTrust poll in New York? It was. We also surveyed 1,200 parents, and the poll is representative of parents across the state, and it was conducted in both English and in Spanish. Uh, So let's jump right into your findings. What did you learn from the parents who responded to the poll? So our biggest findings were really around how parents are feeling about schools being closed. The poll was conducted the last week of March going into the first week of April, right after many schools had just announced closures. And some of the headlines were that parents were really seeking much more consistent contact with their teachers. Uh, They were also really looking for much more equitable access to academic resources And the top line for us is that parents were really concerned about whether or not their students would fall behind academically. So similar to what we saw out of New York, um, I noticed in the California poll that one of the primary concerns, particularly for Black and uh, Latinx parents, is a lack of academic support, uh, not only in relation to things like resources, supplies, and instructional materials, but to less tangible things like district and teacher communication. How do you react to that? That finding, you know, definitely resonates a lot, both um, with 
what New York saw and, you know, the fact that we know districts are trying really hard to reach out to parents and we know that there's a really great digital divide in the state. And so one of the things that we're um, starting to hear as well is that parents are really hoping in terms of the social emotional support their students need, that being able to be in contact with their child's teacher is just extremely important, both for the uh, parent and for the student. And so what we see in the results in terms of four out of five Latinx parents and three out of four African-American parents being concerned that they don't have the resources they need to help their child stay on track um, and, and really also wanting to be in touch with their child's teacher, those key findings are also key to what we know are some of the the stresses that parents find themselves under right now and the social emotional pieces that we know are important for students as well. As we mentioned earlier in this episode with Ian, districts, schools, teachers, and staff certainly deserve a lot of credit for the steps they've taken to address this unprecedented challenge that we're, we're all living in right now. But in your opinion, are there things that we could be doing better maybe to help mitigate these parental concerns or some possible steps we could take going forward to prevent students from falling off academically? Definitely. I mean, we know that schools are doing a lot right now, especially given the short turnaround we had when schools closed. But what we're really starting to look toward now, and we hope the schools and districts are as well, is the fall. So, you know, it's still a little unclear what the fall will look like, but it's going to be more imperative than ever that we that there's a plan for how students are assessed how we know where students are when they do return, whether that's virtually or in person. And then when students do return, how are we ensuring that the learning plan for students is both publicly available to students, parents, and families, and that they can access it, and that there's some consistency as well across schools and districts to ensure that students are getting equitable access to high-quality learning, even given the conditions. And as somebody with your experience, um, I'd be curious to know what you think about what the academic cost of this might be. I mean, do you think that we're looking at a a worst case scenario or a best case scenario or maybe something negligible or in between? How do you think students will fare academically on the other side of this? Well, we already know from the data on summer learning loss so that when students leave school at the end of the school year and then come back in the fall, you know, we already can anticipate that there'll be some loss as there would any year. But the piece that is more disconcerting is that now we'll go for some students an even longer period of time without access to academic resources. So we know that that loss could be greater. But in some ways, that really provides us an opportunity now to be thinking about, well, given what we know works to combat summer learning loss, how do we try and build that in to the extent that we can, either this summer or in the fall? And I know that some districts are already starting to turn an eye towards that planning, and it's going to be imperative that those plans are really strong and thought out now uh, versus waiting to try and do some of that thinking. Alicia Smith-Ariaga, once again, is Executive Director for the Education Trust West. Thanks so much for joining us uh, here on Research Minutes, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. For our final segment, we welcome Jonathan Sapovitz, Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, or CIPRI, 
headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Welcome, John. Thanks, Keith. So given what we know of these parental concerns, the next logical question seems to be, are they valid? But given the unprecedented nature of these school closures, it's a difficult question to answer. That's right. It's such a new issue, and the landscape is so dramatically different. It's really difficult to find researcher evidence to draw upon. So we need to try and make decisions with the best data and what is available, even given the uncertainty. Researchers at NWEA recently attempted to answer some of those questions, drawing on past research into the so-called summer slide in an effort to project possible academic outcomes for students. That analysis was recently published in a report on nwea.org, and you actually had the opportunity to speak with one of the co-authors, NWEA research scientist Megan Kufeld, about their findings. Yeah, it's it was a really interesting and unique look at the potential consequences of school closings around this unprecedented issue of, of COVID-19. And while their work might have some limitations, it's really a forward-looking window that highlights some of the potential challenges and some of the strategies and steps we could take moving into the future. So let's listen in to that interview. Thanks for joining us today, Megan. Yeah, happy to. We're discussing some new projections co-authored by you and NWEA's Vice President of Research, Beth Tarasawa, in a report titled, The COVID-19 Slide, What Summer Learning Loss Can Tell Us About the Potential Impact of School Closures on Student Academic Achievement. The report was recently published at nwea.org and projects the current school closures that could result in substantially lower achievement levels for students. To start, I'd like to ask about the analysis and how you went about doing this research and how you thought about tackling this topic. Yeah, so I had recently with a colleague, Jim Soland, at the University of Virginia, worked on a paper where we were using NWA's map growth data to look at growth trajectories across the school year, so following students from fall to winter to spring in their math and reading test scores to understand kind of what typical growth looks like during the school year. And we had just recently released that paper when the COVID school closures started happening and really wanted to kind of think about just to start out with, if typical growth kind of continues through June for most kids, what that would look like if schools closed in March and then we stopped having typical school kind of what that would look like under maybe a, a assumption that, well, kids maybe are not gaining anymore, but they're not losing anything. How big of a gap would that result in? But we decided to also take a look at assuming, especially early on when school districts were really slow to start, you know, kind of dealing with this crisis and were mostly providing, you know, food and other supports rather than virtual learning. We decided to try to think about what this period of time, now, especially once states started closing for the rest of the year, it becomes essentially three months of school where kids aren't in their kind of normal schooling environments learning at the way that we, you know, we're used to school looking. So we decided to take what we know about summer learning from the macro data and say, okay, kind of worst case scenario, if this extended school closure ends up looking like the summer where no instruction is happening, how far behind would kids 
And the projections were pretty alarming. You know, if you kind of start projecting summer loss from March 15th through the end of the traditional school year, let's say middle of June, kids were in behind in reading. You know, we, we projected that some kids would have lost 20 to 30 percent of their gains. But then in math, the story was even worse. It was sometimes 50%, sometimes even more of the gains that would be lost from the previous school year. And of course, these are projections. You know, they're not based on what we know is actually happening. They're based on the summer of prior years. So we don't expect this to look the same for all students. We expect there actually to be quite a bit of variability in the degree to which kids are receiving instruction or able to kind of sit down and learn while they're at home, the degree to which parents are able to help. But we wanted to provide these kind of two scenarios as baseline for what it could look like if summer ends up being kind of a model for this new closure period. I'd like to talk about the results that you found in a second, because I know you did different scenarios, which you called a slide and a slowdown. Before we get to that, it's quite amazing that you have the data that you have. And so so you have something called the Measures of Academic Progress, which is a widespread assessment that districts and schools and, and many states use. And one of the key things about this Measure of Academic Progress, or MAP test, is that it's vertically scaled so that you can follow kids from one grade to the next. And as you say, the the summer learning loss is a well-documented phenomenon. So it's, it's very clever that you took that concept and essentially applied it to this unprecedented COVID situation. So earlier in our episode, we discussed some new polling, which showed that parents in New York and California were highly concerned about their children's academic progress during COVID-related school closures. Your projections seem to validate or at least are consistent with a number of those concerns. So can you walk us through the way that you looked separately at grades and what you found under the two scenarios of a COVID slowdown and a COVID slide? So the map growth data, like you said, is very unique. It does give us this kind of really unusual ability to look across grade levels, across math and reading, and compare students' test scores in one grade to the next grade, which is a requirement for thinking about things like summer loss. It's a computer adaptive assessment. So you can actually test in the fall and the spring of two different grade levels and compare across, which a researcher, it's kind of a playground to be able to have all this great data at your fingertips. We looked at students' test scores across the 2017-18 school year into the summer of 2018, and we modeled grades 3 to 8 in math and reading, the trajectory across the school year. And then based on the summer loss analyses that we conducted in the summer of 2018, we produced two different projections. The summer slide, or the COVID slide, we refer to it as, the COVID slide projections are based on the assumption that students will lose ground at the same monthly rate that they see during the summer. So we assume that kids stopped attending traditional kind of face-to-face instruction schools on March 15th and assume that they lose ground from March 15th through September 1st when they would you know, return to school normally during the next school year at the rate that was calculated um, based on the summer slide estimates for each grade and subject. Because what we see is that summer loss actually looks different in math. It's, it's worse traditionally in math than reading, 
And then it also varies a bit by grade level as well. So we wanted to make sure our projections were estimated separately for each grade level rather than assuming a constant rate of summer loss across all the grades. So we calculated the summer loss rates and then assumed the projection from March 15th would follow those rates and referred to it as COVID slide. But we also provided an additional projection as well that we called COVID slowdown. And that one is based on some of the other research that's been done on summer learning loss by Paul von Hippel using the early childhood longitudinal study. And in his research, he actually doesn't see a huge loss during the summer in the grades that are available to study within the ECLSK. And so he refers to summer as the summer slowdown in a recent paper that he wrote on summer loss. And so given that, you know, while map growth does show these drops during the summer, that's not kind of a set in stone thing that everyone agrees on. So we provided the summer slowdown or the COVID slowdown projection as kind of something that was not quite so dire, but still assumed that students would basically maintain their achievement level from when schools closed. So that that projection is actually a flat line, assuming that wherever the kids were at March 15th, they would just stay there throughout the end of the year instead of growing or losing ground. So one projection is kind of a dire, the COVID slide is kind of a dire, the, the trajectories are diverging pretty dramatically between where a normal learning trajectory would look like and what the COVID slide looks like, whereas the COVID slowdown is kind of it's not diverging. It's just kids are losing a little bit of learning, but not a huge amount. So some of the things that are interesting in the paper, which again can be found at nwea.org, is a couple of things that are interesting are number one is you have different estimations for different grade levels. And it, it looks to me like younger students are potentially more affected in the COVID slide projections than later grade students. And why is that? Yeah. So what we typically see in the summer loss research that I've done is that kids who grow more during the school year also lose more during the summer. And so if you look at the the early grades, the grades three through five, those growth rates are pretty high relative to the middle school growth rate. So kids are learning a lot more during the school year in terms of rate points. They're going up a lot. And then we see that that in turn, results in kids losing ground at a faster rate as well. And I'm not sure I have a really good answer for why it may be harder to maintain your growth in the early grades versus the later grades, but we do see this kind of proportionality thing where the you know the kids who grow fastest also seem to lose the most in the summer. So this is it's basically uh, an estimation based on previous patterns. And then the other very distinctive pattern is, and you you mentioned this earlier, is the notion that in mathematics, the slide is a steeper slide than it is in reading. Um, And can you talk a little bit about those subject matter distinctions? What's interesting is we actually see this pattern not only in summer loss, but we also see it in some of the absenteeism research and some of the research that looked at weather closure, you know, inclement weather school closures. But basically, when kids are out of school, they seem to lose more in math than they do in reading. And we believe it's because parents feel very supported a lot of times, kind of providing reading at home. There, you know, a lot of families have books at home and go to the library. Whereas those activities in math are less likely to happen in a lot of households, in part because many parents struggled themselves with math 
Uh, they may not feel as comfortable. Math just may not seem as fun to kids. So we believe that see these steeper losses in math in part because there's just less math happening in the home. I think parents view math as the domain of schools, whereas reading is something that often the whole family will do together. So, you know, we believe that that's the main reason that we see the bigger drops in math is that kids are more likely to continue reading during the summer than they are to do kind of whether it's a math worksheet or if it's some sort of computer game that involves math. Uh, you know, someone who's very into math, I don't think math has to be worksheets. It can also can be fun coding games and things like that. But we don't think that that's not as likely to be happening in many home environments compared with reading. Uh, certainly a real challenge for parents who are trying to support their students. A common concern amongst both parents and educators, teachers, school leaders, and other stakeholders is, of course, um, equity issues. And did any of your analyses look at the differences between different income students, different students at different levels of risk, and to see if there were um, any kind of different patterns amongst different kinds of students? Yeah, so we haven't done that so far. I think it is something we will be looking at, though. Paul von Hippel, in a recent Education Next article, argued pretty persuasively against why summer may not be the best model for how inequality will grow during this COVID-19 crisis. He believes, and I agree with him, that during traditional summers, parents kind of take their foot off the gas and aren't pushing academics, whether we're talking about kind of high-income parents or low-income parents. Most families kind of, you know, allow summer to be a time of where the focus isn't strictly academic. But that's not really a reflection of what's happening right now in the COVID crisis. You know, families with a lot of resources are pushing their kids to continue learning during these months that are supposed to be school months, whereas many low-income families are, you know, focusing on getting food and making sure that they have a place to live and trying to, you know, dealing with unemployment and things like that. All that to say, I think we have a lot of reasons to believe inequality may widen during this period, you know, by socioeconomic status, by race, ethnicity, but some of our data isn't necessarily the best template for studying that. So in your report, you note that these projections should be taken with caution. And I'd really like to focus on some of the assumptions that you have made in your analysis and how those assumptions might either mitigate or exacerbate the results. Yeah, that is a, it's a really great question. So we're, we are for sure making a lot of assumptions when we produce these projections. You know, the biggest assumption is that summer is a good model for what's happening during this period. And I think there's, there's many reasons to believe it's not, especially as the weeks have gone on during this closure. School districts have, are trying all kinds of different things to try to promote learning during this period, whether it's Zoom check-ins, whether it's sending worksheets home or doing virtual instruction. So I think as the weeks have gone on, the differences between traditional summer and what's happening for children in schools right now is, is looking different. There's a lot of instruction happening and school districts are doing all kinds of things to support families in terms of food and other things as well. So I think the biggest assumption is that summer provides a template for what's happening. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that maybe in some school districts that haven't been able to implement virtual learning, it is a good model. Whereas in many other school districts, you know, we would expect losses not to be as big because there is learning happening. But on the flip side, we also know that, you know, this is an extremely disruptive 
period of time for a lot of families. A lot of families are dealing with unemployment, with possible homelessness. And so based on studies from the Great Recession and other periods, we know whenever there's a lot of economic turmoil and instability, children's learning is also affected. We feel that for some students, summer may not even be a good, you know, it it could be worse. This period could actually exacerbate learning beyond what we see in a traditional summer because of all of the instability and other challenges that many families are facing. So, you know, these these projections kind of provide some sort of baseline. We think for a lot of kids, summer isn't a good model because learning is happening in schools. And so they'll probably end up doing a lot better. But then there's another group of kids who this may not even be as bad as it gets. Like, you know, the learning losses could actually be worse. And we just won't know until we collect data kind of how close we were, how much variability there is. There's just all of these events happening at the same time is pretty unprecedented. And so it's really hard to isolate any one cause and effect, uh, given all the different things that are happening at the same time. One of the things that I really appreciated about the report was how you went beyond these projections and you talked about ways to support educators and families during the crisis. As you mentioned in the report, and you know, I think that the nation has come to appreciate Teacher, school leaders, schools and districts are really doing an amazing job in all the efforts to adjust to the monumental challenges that they're facing in this unprecedented time. So what are some of the things that you mentioned that could be taken to mitigate these potential losses due to this disruption of schooling? Yeah, I mean, I will say I am less of a policy person and more of a researcher. But, you know, I think that teachers, parents, district leaders deserve so much credit for adjusting so quickly. I mean, we're talking about a disruption on a scale that no one has ever experienced before across the entire country. And to have instruction happening within a few weeks of every child and teacher getting sent home from school is pretty remarkable. And so I think a lot of our recommendations focused on planning for the next school year and really trying to support students once they return, you know, assuming we do return to a traditional school structure in the fall and thinking about potentially ways to support learning by extending the school year, providing out-of-school enrichment or things that schools can do to really help catch up children. I think it's definitely going to be a huge challenge, and especially on top of the fact that many schools and states are likely to lose funding relative to previous years, given the kind of economic ramifications of so many people losing jobs and losing tax bases. So, you know, I think many of the strategies and suggestions we might make are really great, but they don't necessarily acknowledge the economic realities and the choices, the tough choices a lot of district leaders will have to make in terms of prioritizing extending the school year over hiring counselors and hiring other support for students during this period. I think one of the best things we can do is really support teachers during the fall and help them deal with the fact that students are going to come back to the classrooms with very different learning levels. And some students will need to be caught up as well as teachers will have to be doing catch-up and providing on-grade instruction and differentiating learning in a way that, you know, teachers do already, but it will probably be exacerbated from previous years. So the ways that we can support teachers in doing differentiated learning and helping kids who are coming in at very different levels 
after returning from this COVID kind of extended school closure period will be really important. So Megan, this is super interesting, timely and very accessible work. And I applaud you and Beth for putting this together and getting it out. For listeners who'd like to learn more about this study, the full report is titled The COVID-19 Slide, What Summer Learning Loss Can Tell Us About the Potential Impact of School Closures on Student Academic Achievement, and it's available at nwea.org. Megan Kufeld, thank you so much for joining us on Research Minutes today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.